Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is from a series of messages that I preached originally at Grace Bible Church in Warren, Michigan last year for their annual Bible conference. My family and I had a great time of Bible study and fellowship with Pastor Tom Bruchet and the rest of the saints there at Grace Bible Church. And I think you'll find this to be an edifying series of lessons as we examine the divine institutions that God lays out in his word, starting right in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. The topic then for this this uh, session now this morning is that of worship. And sometimes when, when various people teach on divine institutions, sometimes they include worship as one of them, sometimes they don't, but we're going we're gonna to talk about worship this morning. And um, of course, when we're when we're talking about worship in this sense, certainly an individual can just worship God on their own or, you know, a family can worship God together. But we're talking about corporate worship. You know, when we come together like we are here this morning as a, a local assembly of the body of Christ to, to worship God. And what should that look like according to God's word? Um, now, as we've come through these institutions, I hope you see how each one is kind of, kind of based in the one that comes before it. And so we began there with volition. Uh, we talked then about marriage and how, how those two people, man and woman, they come together and become one flesh. Uh, of course, family follows logically from that as well. And you see in a, a passage like this how the worship of the church really is very much based in family as well. Uh, you see, as Paul is, is describing to Timothy how he ought to behave himself toward other members of that, the local church that he's at there, you see how he compares all those relationships to family relationships, right? So he says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Now, if, if uh, somebody hasn't learned in their family how you ought to treat a father, a mother, brothers, sisters, you see how that would have a, a negative impact on a church when those individuals come together and you're told to, to treat the, the uh, elders as a father, treat, treat an elder as a father, what does that mean? All right? And so as, as these institutions have broken down, as they've become corrupted, and, and you know, that's not something new, that's something that ever since the fall, these, these institutions have been corrupted, uh, each one affects another. See, when you, when you look out at, at uh, the culture and you see, for instance, what's going on in marriages, and and uh, you know the the deficiencies there and the and the um, 
you know, just the, the problems that are taking place in marriage as a, as a widespread cultural phenomenon, understand that has an impact on families. There are people that, there are people that believe that what goes on in their marriage doesn't really affect their family at all. Right? There are people that, that will argue that uh, you know, children are, are raised just the same or just as well uh, in a, you know, in a, uh, by a single parent or by, I mean, today it's, it's even at where people are saying you don't need a mother and a father. Two mothers is fine. Two fathers is fine. Right? And, and children can be raised just as well in that environment. Um, but tr- you know, I think when you look at things honestly, you see what's going on in marriage affects families. Okay? And what's going on in families, the family is, is sort of the basic building block of, of so much of society. Uh, and in the church, where you cannot have a strong church without strong families. It, it doesn't happen. In fact, um, we're here in 1 Timothy. Go, just go back, to, go back to chapter 3. You know, the, the requirements for leadership in the church... For, is that men have demonstrated leadership in their families, okay? Uh, you see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You see, so he's, he's honoring that institution of marriage. Uh, he must be a husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. And verse 4 says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? You see that requirement there. And, And that's a requirement that we ignore at our peril and at the peril of our, our churches. You know, now sometimes in, in churches, maybe, maybe, you know, new church plants or smaller churches, there, there may be a, a tendency sometimes to kind of overlook some of these things and say, well, we need people in leadership, so we'll, you know, we've got, we've got some men, they maybe don't, don't meet these requirements, but we'll put them in that position and hope they grow into that position. And the reality is, in most cases, you would be better off having, you know, having those positions vacant uh, than taking people who don't meet the requirements. See, see, when it gives that requirement there that a man know how to rule his own house, and he's demonstrated that in, in the home, when a, when a man's coming into leadership in a local church and is going to have leadership in that, in that, you know, that corporate body, that assembly that's going to worship together, what's going on in his home is going to affect that. And, and a man whose home is in disorder, you put him in a position of leadership in the church, and that is going to result in the church being in disorder. Uh, so these things are not just, um, you know, it's, it's not just God trying to exclude people or something like that. They're very practical instructions. Every one of those requirements there is, is there for a purpose. But you see that the home becomes the, the training ground. It becomes the, the place where the, you know, the proper understanding of authority, whether it be submission to authority or how to, how to exercise authority, it, it's where those lessons are taught that then carry over into the church and affect that, that corporate worship together. All right? Now, when you think back to Genesis where we looked at the beginning of these institutions... Uh, when it's Adam and Eve and, and just their family, 
uh, they would have worshipped God together as a family. And, you know, that's something that is, is largely lost in our culture, even among Christians. The idea of just a family coming together and, and worshiping God together. But, you know, historically, that's, that's what families have done. Um, t- today, families have sort of outsourced the, the responsibility for, you know, teaching spiritual things. And, and that they've, they've sort of outsourced that to the church. And that's, you know, while, while certainly there is a place for, you know, for instance, the, the kids are in Sunday school here this morning. Um, you know, there's a, there's a place for that. Realize that, that really there is a responsibility of the family, even, even before you start talking about the church and, and corporate worship, there's a responsibility of the family and of parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be teaching the Word of God to, to their children. And so even before you start talking about the church, there's a responsibility in families to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teach, teach them the word of God. There's a responsibility of a husband toward his wife to teach the word of God. And those lessons that are learned in the home, and, and uh, a lot of those lessons, I'll tell you, they're more, uh, what's the phrase people use? They're more caught than taught. You know, children learn things in the home uh, certainly they learn things, you know, when you, when you try and teach them and, you know, sit them down and talk to them. But a lot of things that children learn in the home are caught. They just, they just learn it by looking at the example and, and don't even realize they're learning something. But uh, there's a, you know, there's an important uh, priority that needs to be put upon the family. And, and you go back, again, you go back not too far in history, and it was, it was expected among Christian families that fathers would throughout the week be leading their family in, in family worship, uh, you know, singing songs with their family, teaching the Word of God to their family. And, the, you know, when you come together once a week or a few times a week, that serves to sort of reinforce what they're learning at home. And, and so when the Bible describes the local assembly and, and the church, the body of Christ, he uses those family terms. See, so you learn in the home how you ought to treat a sister, how you ought to treat a brother, how, um, how you respond to a father and a mother, and those lessons that are learned at home then are brought over into the church, into that spiritual family relationship. Uh, go to, oh, where, where do I want to go? Let's go to um, Titus chapter 2. In... in um, Many churches, they've kind of lost that, that family-type atmosphere. You see here, Titus chapter 2, um, it describes the part, when you talk about the ministry of the local church, every person in that ministry plays a part in it. It's not just a, a pastor that stands up in front and preaches. It's everybody plays a part in that ministry, and everybody has different roles to play in it. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort 
to be sober-minded. And, and, and he says to Timothy, who would be one of those young men, he says, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And, and the local church, which is really the, the place Paul calls the, the local church, the pillar and ground of the truth, Right? We, we come together as a, as a local church to worship God together, to study the, the Word of God together. And you see the, the different roles he lays out there. Now, in this passage, there, there are different roles uh, based on, on gender and age. Right? And so he says to the, to the, uh, the aged men that they're to be sober, uh, which is a, a, you know, he uses words like sober and grave. That doesn't mean you can't ever have a smile on your face or anything like that. The, the word sober in the Bible means to be of a, of a right mind, okay? It would be, the opposite of that would be, uh, in a certain sense, to be, to be drunken, would obviously not being, be sober, but also to, to be thinking in the wrong way, you know, be led aside to false doctrine and that kind of thing. You're, you're not in your right mind. And to, to be sober here about these, these things of the Word of God and, and grave and, and be serious about the things of God, right? So it's not saying that, that, you, can't, um, that you can't enjoy things, you can't enjoy uh, the ministry of the local church and that kind of thing, but you realize there's some things to be serious about. The Word of God is a serious thing, and, and there's some things for us to be serious about, and, and we shouldn't always just make light of things, you realize that much of, of corporate worship today, as with all of these institutions, the corruption that comes into these divine institutions is when the institution becomes about what, what man feels is best for him. Okay? So in, in the institution of marriage, you know, most people that are married have no conception of any kind of biblical idea of marriage beyond just whatever they picked up through tradition or, or whatever. But marriage is about, you know, what's, what's best for me. And, of course, that causes a lot of problems in marriage, right? Because you got these two individuals that are both saying, what's best for me? And those things conflict sometimes. Now, the design of the institution, the purpose of the institution is to say what glorifies God. Right? The purpose of, of marriage we saw last night, uh, especially in the dispensation of grace, is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And, and it glorifies, the godly marriage glorifies God. And, you know, hopefully the side effect of that is that those two people involved in it are happy in that, in that arrangement, but the highest good there is for it to glorify God. In the family, the same thing. It's, you know, we don't, we don't organize our families just off what, you know, what statistics tell us are best for children or what, uh, you know, psychology might say is best for children. We want to say what's going to glorify God in, in our family. But again, you know, most people are just kind of, kind of going through saying what's, what's going to be best for children in this family, what's going to be best for, for us, and God's left out of the picture. And the same thing has happened in worship. Think about why people go to the churches that they go to. Uh, if, you, if you were to go out and just ask random churchgoers why they go to the church that they go to, one of the, one of the top answers you would get is because I like the music there, right? It, it's, it's something that, that pleases me. I like that style of music. It's something that I'm comfortable with. It, it, it 
pleases me. Um, they most people won't give an answer that has anything to do with whether, you know, whether they've determined that that church is sticking truer to God's word or, or something like that. Now, I, I, I trust with most of you that you would have a very different answer, okay? That, that your answer would have to do with the word of God and, and the fact that this church teaches the word of God rightly divided. But many, many people aren't that way. If you, ever, you know, if you ever get frustrated with people sometimes, even sometimes people who understand some truth and yet they'll continue in, in some church that you know isn't preaching truth, a lot of it is they're looking for something that's going to serve them. And it's the music or it's the programs of that church, right? So, so uh, families with young children, they want a church with programs for those children. And, uh, you know, whether that church is, is teaching the truth of God's word or not, they've got nice programs for our children. Uh, and, and people choose churches on those, on those criteria. And you see what that's about. They're, they're wanting some kind of an experience that's going to serve them, that's going to please them, and what God's Word says doesn't really come into it. Um, and, and this is why you have in many, many churches almost sort of like a, like a rock concert type feel to it, right? They know people enjoy going to rock concerts, so if they enjoy going to rock concerts, let's make church like a rock concert, and people will want to come there. And uh, in order to do that, often what they have to do is they have to, they have to abandon much of the Word of God. You may get a, a little bit of the Word of God there, but not very much because it's going to interfere with that, that feeling that people get. And that's, that's nothing new. You know, when you, when you look at, um, you, know, you go back, back hundreds of years and you look at these huge cathedrals that were built, all right. Why, why, did they, why did they build buildings like that? I mean, was it just to show off? Why did, why did they do it? If you look at why they did it, that building is designed to, to be this, this imposing structure that makes you feel a certain way when you go into it. It makes you feel reverential and, and makes, makes it seem like you're in a sacred place. And they put very careful design into that, where they put the windows. Uh, you know, these these some of these cathedrals that are are so tall and it's not because there's multiple stories in there it's just this this huge space inside and they would put windows up at the very top so that you're down at the bottom and it's it's so it's so high up there that you don't even really see the windows there but that light coming in and and you know this was something that was supposed to make you feel and and did make you feel if you ever toured any of those kinds of buildings um it it makes you feel a certain way right but but where in the Bible does it tell you that that's, <laughs> that's what you ought to be doing? Okay, that you ought to be using, it's really kind of a form of manipulation, isn't it? Really? Uh, I mean, it's instead of taking the word of God, which ought to be the central focus of the assembly of, of the local church, the body of Christ, uh, instead of making that the focus, they make the buildings the focus. They make thing, you know, gold and silver the focus. All of these various things that are designed to make people feel a certain way and feel like they had some sort of a religious experience. And, you know, that in itself really is very close to idolatry, right? It's, a lot of times it's, a, it's sort of a, an unconscious sort of idolatry because people have the idea that they're, that they're worshiping God. If you ask them, are they worshiping those things, that those, you know, people would say no. But 
really all those things that are put in are designed to have, you know, to, to bring about this sort of a, a religious experience. Um, and, and really, if you, were to, if you were to compare that with the idolatry of, of, you know, ancient pagan nations, you would find there's a lot of similarity there. In fact, in some cases, direct practices that have been brought over from paganism uh, into, into professing Christianity. Right? And, and that kind of thing is what the world in general associates with worship. Right? So if you, were to, if you were to ask lost people about what it would mean to worship God, they would talk to you about you know, going to a, a building, and they probably have in their mind a, a specific style of building. Um, they would think about the music. Uh, in that building. For some people, they might be more drawn to the, the more traditional music, and that gives them a sort of a religious experience. For other people, it's a, it's a uh, contemporary music. Um, but, you know, you, choo- you choose where you're going to worship based on those criteria. What, what pleases me? What makes me feel this way? What gives me this experience? And none of that is true worship at all. You, you see, when we talked about the origins of of worship and that kind of that kind of hint there right away in Genesis, right after the fall, when God takes those coats of skins to clothe Adam and Eve to to cover their nakedness, cover their shame because of their sin, there was a sacrifice there. And when you come down through the Bible, worship is is always centers around sacrifice. Now in the Old Testament, in the in the worship at the temple, that was centered around, around animal sacrifices, which we know were just a picture of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross of Calvary, offering himself for the sins of mankind. You see, that, that's really... To, to worship something is to ascribe worth. And in false worship, people are ascribing worth a lot of times just to the sort of the trappings of religion. They're ascribing worth to all these, all these various things that, that make them feel a certain way about themselves and about God. But what true worship is really is to, to ascribe worth to God himself, and you do that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary allows us to worship God in a way that, that even the Old Testament saint couldn't. You know, you, you go back and you look at uh, the Old Testament worship. And, and even there, even there where they worshipped in first a tabernacle, uh, later a, a temple at Jerusalem, and that temple was rebuilt various times. You know, when you picture that, that for instance, the tabernacle or, or the temple, you might naturally have in your mind something like these, these religious temples that people worship in today. But, you know, really, either one of those were very different from that. Now, yeah, there was a lot of gold and silver there in it, but really the design of, of those buildings was very simple. Uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a lab, there wasn't a lot of decoration, you know. There were, there were a lot of things that were squares and circles and, and that. There was some decoration, but not a lot. Uh, in fact, the altar there at Jerusalem uh, you, may, you may remember that uh, King, he was in Syria and he saw an altar they were worshiping at and he thought, hey, that's better than what we have. And he had one made to look like that. And he moved the, the altar that God had told him how to build. He put that off to the side and they used that every once in a while, but they used the prettier altar uh, most of the rest of the time because he didn't want to be behind the Syrians, you know. Uh, he, didn't want to, he didn't want them to have a better altar than he had. And um, this kind of this this 
it's a natural desire, but it, but it really is a, a sinful desire to think that we somehow worship God better through having better ornamentation, better instrumentation, you know, better things. Now, certainly, if you've got, if you've got talents, you ought to use them to the Lord. And if you've got talents in the areas of music, use that to the Lord and glorify the Lord in that. But don't, don't choose your church based on where they have the best musicians. And don't choose your church based on where they have the best decoration in the, in the building, because those things are all just secondary. Really, they're not even secondary. They're way, way down the list somewhere. Um, worship is about having Christ there at the center and Christ and Him crucified. And so when we come together, um, uh, Charles Spurgeon said one time about his preaching that the way he preached his messages was he would announce his text and then make a beeline for the cross. <laughs> and that's really what preaching ought to be, right? That's what preaching ought to be no matter where you're preaching in the Bible. If you're preaching out of the Old Testament, you can show how it's eventually fulfilled in the cross. If you're preaching out of the New Testament, it's, it's uh, talking about the cross. And we can certainly learn about all kinds of things, and we can learn about all th- kinds of things from the Bible, but if the cross isn't at the center of it, if that finished work of Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection isn't at the center of it, then all we're doing is just sort of accumulating some, some intellectual facts. And, and so worship is not so much about, about what we do in singing and, and you know, the various things that we do, but it's about ascribing worth to Christ and His work and, and recognizing that and honoring that. And if we're going to sing a song, that's what the song ought to do. And if we're going to, if we're going to you know, decide how we want our building to look, that's what that ought to do. And when we come to the Word of God, that's what that ought to do. It ought to point out that worth of what Christ has accomplished. And, and that centrality of the fact that there is an atonement through sacrifice, always, anywhere you look in the Bible, always was a part of godly worship. Now, we can do that in a way that the Old Testament saint couldn't. The Old Testament saint had it in, in types and shadows, these pictures that they didn't even fully understand. I mean, even, even the, the prophets that talked about what was going to take place later on with Christ, the, the Scripture says of them that... Um, they, actually, we can look at it if you go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Speaking of the salvation that's in Christ, verse 10 says, "...of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow." You see, even the prophets themselves... It says that, that they, they were searching what. They didn't know what the Spirit signified, and they didn't know when the Spirit signified. Um, you know, you can certainly see, we can go back in hindsight, we can see Christ in all those things, and I encourage you to do that. Go back into those types and pictures of the Old Testament. Study the tabernacle and see how it points to Christ and the temple and how it points to Christ and, and the scriptures of the prophets and, and how those things are fulfilled in Christ. They did, that was all just, you know, kind of kind of, hints at things to them. It says they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit did signify. Verse 12 says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. There it says those, those prophets themselves didn't understand those things. 
they understood it was going to be for somebody else that was going to come later, that was going to see the fulfillment. And it says there even the angels desire to look, look into those things. What a privilege that we have to have the completed word of God and to, to know the message of God's grace and to, to be able to come together as a group of believers and to just glorify the Lord for what he's done in that. Glorify the Lord for his grace and, and worship him. Now, you can do that in a building like this. You can do that in a, in a restaurant where you, you've come together to have a meal. You can do that in your home. You can do that, that anywhere. But what a special thing it is when a group of saints comes together like this. We come together from very different backgrounds, very different um, you know, social, social standings. Uh, all this difference, but, but we have something in common in Christ. And we come together in Christ and we ascribe worth to Him and we, and we glorify that work that He's done. And it truly is a family. We truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we can you know, see those aged men and, and treat them as a father and aged women as mothers and, and take those things we've learned in the home and, and put them into practice as a body, as a a local assembly. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone, 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.